and welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday. This series on science, advice and government is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. Today we're discussing the Ebola outbreak of 2014 and how the UK government used science and evidence in tackling it. I'm pleased to be joined by three people who were very closely involved at the time. Dame Sally Davis, who's Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, was the Chief Medical Officer for England from 2010 to 2019 and chaired, co-chaired the SAGE process during the Ebola outbreak. Sir Oliver Letwin, Conservative MP for over 20 years, was the Senior Minister in the Cabinet Office during the time of the Ebola outbreak and played a pivotal role on the political side. And finally, we're joined by Professor Melissa Leach, who is the director of the Institute for Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Uh, Melissa Leach is an anthropologist who's worked in West Africa and on questions of knowledge and infectious diseases and played a crucial role in bringing evidence from the social sciences into the government's response to Ebola. So thank you all for joining us today. Melissa, perhaps you could start by talking a little bit about the context for the emergence of this Ebola outbreak in West Africa that we're talking about today. Well, Ebola virus disease is a high fatality hemorrhagic fever, a rather scary disease that was first recorded in 1976 in the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC. And there were a series of small outbreaks in Central Africa that were managed quite well. They maybe had death rates of two or 300 people in the following decades. But in 2013, a big outbreak in West Africa really took the world by surprise. And it began in December 2013 in a small village called Meliandu in Guinea. We're very close to the border with Liberia and Sierra Leone in a region in which Ebola in humans was previously completely unknown. So this was a new and frightening disease. It spread very fast amongst populations there, which are quite dense, quite urbanized with big towns, very mobile, a lot of trade going on, a lot of farming. And amidst health systems um, and citizen state relations, which had been rendered really fragile by decades of conflict and mistrust. And so initially ignored by the international community, it was kind of a faraway happening in a faraway place. By the time the epidemic was quite belatedly declared a public health emergency of international concern by the WHO in September 2014, it was already out of control with subsequent modelling predicting millions of deaths. Bring us up to sort of the the kind of time we're thinking about here, Oliver. How did it first sort of come as an issue of concern to the government of David Cameron, in which you served as a cabinet office minister? Well, the um, the sad truth is that the way that we first became concerned about it was by the highly sophisticated and enormously organised method of reading newspapers and um, listening to the radio and watching TV. And there were reports of the kind that Melissa has described about rapid uh, rise. There was no official notification at that point from WHO, as you've uh, mentioned, Melissa. And... I, um, Sally will explain what people like she and Mark Walbert were aware of, but there wasn't any great concern inside the UK government until taking out a literally, as a matter of fact, in this case, an envelope, it was the front rather than the back, and a pocket calculator. I did some sums about what would happen if you made the naive assumption that this thing grew at the rate at which it was growing, and came to the conclusion, based on absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of the epidemiology or anything else, that this would be a very, 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 very large global event if it carried on this way. 
Now, as a matter of fact, we know have you know have come to know subsequently. I'm, I'm sure people like Sally and Melissa did already know. I certainly didn't that crossing borders is much more difficult than one might think with these diseases because if it encounters a country as it did, like Nigeria, which have decent public health systems, it could be contained much faster than it was able to be contained in Sierra Leone and Liberia and Guinea. But but I didn't know any of that, so I just did the simple arithmetic of you know doubling at the rate it was doubling, and uh, in terms of deaths, you know each morning I um, had a discussion with David Cameron and um, George Osborne and others about what was going on in the world and what we should do about it. And I pointed out that uh, as we were on this arithmetic likely to be dead in the not too distant future, uh, we should probably do something about this. It was at this point that I first discussed the issue with Sally and Mark. After you know debating how likely it was that there was a real problem, we, I think we all gradually came to the conclusion there was a real problem. So, Sally, I mean, you've been chief medical officer since two thousand and eleven. So, you know, how does it work in the sense of obviously parts of the world, parts of government, you know, know that something's going on in West Africa that that is a matter of concern. You know, in the account we've heard from Oliver, it, it takes someone senior at the centre of government really to start to get the wheels in motion. Is that is that how it seemed from where you were sitting in the Department of Health? Well, we had the Department for International Development, DFID, and the Foreign Office both watching it. As others, I was watching mainly through the newspapers, but uh, Chris Whitty now Chief Medical Officer, was the Chief Scientific Advisor at DFID, so we all knew he was keeping a close eye on it. And for us in Britain, there are two arms to this. One is what happens in country and do we have a role in it? And the second is what do we need to do in our country and what happens? And until it's got to a certain level, something like uh, Ebola, which has such a high death rate, you know, you you think that it won't come over. It's it's got to be at a, a, to Britain. So I was watching, knowing that if it grew too much, we'd have to do something. And I think we also believed the point that Oliver just made about an, a strong public health system that if it came. You know, there would be few and we were probably pretty well protected with our public health system. Nigeria did well. And how important was the SAGE process in, in marshalling evidence for government decision making? Maybe you could tell us a little bit, Sally, about, you know, how you thought of SAGE working at that time and, and what kind of triggered the SAGE process in this case. SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, is convened when government, central government, decides to call an emergency and assembles everyone, and it's called a COBRA meeting, but a meeting in the cabinet office briefing rooms. We can, if we think that something's going to blow, we can have what is called a presage. And and for each emergency, there are different people in the room. So if it's a chemical um, problem, then you'd have people from Porton Down who understand chemical problems. For something like this, we uh, assembled essentially the group that you'd have in flu. It is called by the chief scientific advisor, who was Mark Walpert at the time, with input from the CMO whenever there's a health uh, side to it. And in fact, the CMO co-chairs when there's a health issue. So you expect in the room officials who need to 
find out what's going on and gather that evidence and put it into policy papers with the options for the ministers and the government and the scientists. And there are always different groups of modelers. We had some behavioral people. We had virologists and experts on Ebola. And so you assemble in a room and start to discuss what is the situation at the time, where might it go, and SAGE commissions, subgroups doing different pieces of work. Melissa will tell me, but my memory of Ebola is that actually we didn't have the social scientists in the room at the beginning. The other role of SAGE is to call on different scientific advisory groups to government. For instance, uh, we could call on scientific advisory groups about cleanliness, about nasty pathogens, about the safety of the blood supply, about vaccines. So not to repeat work that others are expert at, but to call it in and integrate it into the whole. Now one can find the minutes of those SAGE meetings on the Government Office of Science website. And there were three of these SAGE meetings in uh, 2014. But it's interesting that you're saying that there's sort of pre-meetings that happened beforehand, perhaps, that help kind of frame the questions. But th- there were three, two in October, one in December. And I think, Melissa, you were in the first meeting. So it's interesting What's the kind of disciplinary mix? Who decides, you know, what is the relevant expertise to convene to try and bring that to bear and support government decision making? It sits with the government's chief scientific advisor in consultation with other chief scientific advisors to departments and the CMO. But you wouldn't expect, for instance, to have an NHS person in the room in general, because that's about operational issues. So it is about the science, what's going on, where's it going, and the scientific response and the operational response is dealt with elsewhere. It'd be very interesting, Melissa, to hear from you, you know, how you got involved and a little bit about your kind of first impressions. And then I want to sort of open up to turn back to Oliver and, and hear about, you know, what actual decisions were being taken and how the SAGE and other kind of expert advice was being drawn on. And then we might kind of go deeper into the question about the role that social sciences did play and could play. But first, Melissa, you know, how did you get involved in in that first instance? Well, um, it was actually very interesting. So during that summer, 2014, I too, along with colleagues in country in Sierra Leone and Guinea, were were watching the figures, watching the cases and becoming incredibly concerned. And partly what we were also seeing was that the beginnings of a response was being incredibly badly resisted by local populations. So we had situations where Médecins Sans Frontières and other NGOs who were frontline responders, as they often are in crises of this sort, were finding that their land rovers were being stoned, that villagers were digging ditches across their roadways so that they couldn't get there, and that patients were being literally stolen back out of hospital because people were very, very frightened, more of the response than of the disease. So the response, although it was slow to start, it was also failing. And a number of um, anthropologists and I, both in the region and in the UK and in France in relation to Guinea, thought, actually, we've got to do something about this because there is knowledge and understanding 
from those of us who've lived and worked in that region for a long time about why this is happening, about the social and political context, about the deep inequalities in the region, about the histories of inappropriate external interventions, of foreign direct investment, of mining, which actually make the rumours that were circulating about this is now a genocidal response to get rid of people and that Ebola is a fabrication of the West, which were all ideas that were circulating, actually had some truth behind them. And we, we knew that unless communities were to come on board and on side, that response would continue to fail and that there was a role for anthropological and social science knowledge in, in helping. So in parallel, a group has got together, we managed to get some funding from um, the Wellcome Trust and Save the Children and DFID for an Ebola response anthropology platform, as we called it, to try and bring that kind of knowledge into the response. And more or less at the same time, I was invited onto the SAGE and I was there at the first meeting. And I think it was because unlike health crises which unfold in the UK, Ebola was seen as something a bit exotic. It was happening far away in a place where um, a lot of UK-based scientists didn't know very much about. And I think there was seen to be a role for anthropological insight to perhaps not realistically to sort of unlock what was going on culturally on the ground. So I was actually invited onto the SAGE. And at the same time, we set up this platform and it became formalised as the SAGE Social Science Subcommittee. And I think Chris Whitty's role as the DFID Chief Science Advisor was instrumental there. I knew him from previously, and he came to, to co-chair with my colleague Melissa Parker at the London School of Hygiene, that social science subgroup. Great. I'm very keen in a little while to get into some of the substance of what sort of social science knowledge was mobilised, how it then linked in with the modelling, with the other sorts of scientific understanding and, and what difference that made. But, but first, to turn to you, Oliver. So you were in the Cabinet Office. You had raised the question about the, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa and whether it is something the UK government should be really taking seriously. How did you, from the centre of government, know what was going on? What, what sources of evidence and expertise were you drawing on as, as decisions were being made? Well, I mean, the first point I should make is that everything we've just been talking about, the convening of social is incredibly late in the day. Uh, the second point is, and I mean, unlike Sally and Melissa, of course, I don't know what goes on inside SAGE, not, not being one of the SAGEs, so to speak. I was just a customer. And whereas on some occasions, when in the National Security Council, we were dealing with other emergencies, more immediately affecting the UK or potentially affecting the UK, uh, we certainly did hear from the chief scientist or others reports of what SAGE had concluded, much as we've seen repeatedly during the COVID outbreak. On this occasion, I, I don't recall any instance in which uh, any... Uh, early information came to me, you know, labelled SAGE. Uh, I've no doubt that Sally and Mark, in the discussions we were having, and maybe also uh, different ministers and Jeremy Hunt at Health and so on, were aware of what SAGE done. But I personally, I wasn't, I wasn't receiving sort of SAGE reports at this, this stage, or, or indeed really at any stage. Uh, uh, at, a, at a slightly later stage, I started having, and Sally knows, a, a lot of discussions with her and Chris Whitty, and Chris had no doubt was you know deeply immersed in what Sage was doing, but also had personal, very long-range professional knowledge and understanding of, of, of the spread of viruses. Mainly, what I was dealing with was a blamage. I, I just couldn't get anybody organised to, to do. You know, the, the, 
the main my main role in 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 that coalition government was to sort of get get things to happen and you know, get things done that weren't being done. And normally, a bit of a fuss and you know getting the prime minister involved and things would get departments to sort of do things. That, that, that what was actually happening on the ground? You know, how many people were dying? What 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 were the conditions of public health there? Um, what were the prospects for a vaccination program? Um, uh, how, how could we get hospitals set up quickly to deal with things? Uh, leave aside all the refined and incredibly important things which Melissa is talking about, which we did indeed discover were central. You know, how does the head man in the village respond and how do you get the, the village to accept that it can't touch the dead bodies of people being buried without terrible risks? And so and all those sort of, we were way away from any of those sort of questions because we were simply at the stage of trying to get government departments to take the thing seriously, the relevant government departments. As Sally has pointed out, at that stage, and indeed, thank God, in the end, it wasn't really a, a UK problem. Um, there were, as Sally will remember, there were, uh, at a much later stage, repeated exercises to deal with the question of what happens if somebody carrying Ebola and, uh, arrives in the UK. And we did have, as we may want to come on to, some cases of people who'd been health workers from the UK who brought Ebola back to the UK. So that there was a, a UK aspect, but at this stage, we're, we're, we're talking about something which was, as Melissa says, going on in a strange place far away. And so uh, I got a group of three, or maybe it was four, cabinet office officials to uh, start doing incredibly simple things, which was simply to have a spreadsheet, which said, you know, how many people were dying in which countries? What were we providing? Uh, uh, how many weeks was it since we said we were going to provide something else and hadn't, you know, things of this sort. So that, to my astonishment, it turned out that armed with this spreadsheet, the Prime Minister was better informed at the meetings we were having about the subject. Luckily, in this case, the Ministry of Defence was highly relevant to Sierra Leone because, uh, well, I mean, at one stage we'd sort of invaded it. Uh, <laughs> David Richards had gone in with with troops. There was a very close relationship with the president. There were a, a British troops on the ground. The Ministry of Defence was willing to play a role. There were, uh, you know, they didn't have the information or the professional expertise to deal with the disease, but yeah. they had organisational capacity. I mean, it's, it was getting it's, them involved that really mattered. We'll come in a moment to the sort of what happened and what actual actions were possible and, and, and what role the UK played. But it's very, very interesting to hear you talk about you know, we know that there was already at that time lots of knowledge, lots of people knew lots of things, but your problem was that it was completely disaggregated and not coherently assembled in, you know, for the UK government initially to have a clear oversight of what was happening. Is, is that what you're, you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And I think, let's take, for example, the case of the NHS. A few months on from what we were just talking about, after Sally and I had rushed around talking to the WHO and there'd been many of these meetings internally and the departments were mobilised and the Ministry of Defence was there and so on. The NHS, well, I don't know if Sally will tell us whether it was actually organised or mainly sort of voluntary. I think it was mainly voluntary, but there, there were piles of really clued up medics who very bravely offered their services. And Sally and Jeremy Hunt and Chris Whitty and the other people in the Department of Health made that easy to happen. I, she will yeah. tell us how. So that was one incredibly important component. The second was, as I say, the Ministry of Defence. The third was getting the DFID people uh, on the ground to have the authority with the Ministry of Defence and the volunteer medics to start doing things. And the fourth, which is completely separate, uh, Sally will also recall, 
is that I, I became convinced from an early stage that we weren't actually going to conquer this without vaccines. And I started having, as I'm sure Sally did independently, a series of discussions with the other witty who was in charge of uh, GSK about getting uh, vaccines going. And then Sally and I had a series of discussions with the Americans and the French and the WHO about, I remember one night, for example, we were we were on a long call with the then Director General of the WHO trying to get her to recognize that mobilizing the world to produce vaccines was a critical component here. So there were, there were various things that needed to be done and, and the, the basic problem was getting things moving. Yeah, and of course what we're particularly interested in here is the role that expertise and knowledge plays in these processes, always obviously aware that lots of what matters most isn't directly to do with knowledge and expertise, but that, that's what we're particularly interested in, the role it does well, play. So yeah, Sally, let I was me pick up there because please. there was a big knowledge and expertise needed in logistics, and I think that's what uh, Oliver is talking about when he talks about the uh, Department of Defence and the Health Service, and that has always been underplayed and not recognized as a source of expertise and indeed of research. You can research how to do logistics better. You can understand it. So I think that one of the blocks was that. There was another block which was about data and how it flowed. And we found in the 910 flu epidemic, um, pandemic, and then it happened again in Ebola, that some people were getting data direct from the countries or from the countries via the WHO, and then wouldn't share it with us in the SAGE context to use for the UK response mm -hmm. in country. And I remember pleading with them saying, look, you know, for humanitarian reasons, you need to share this. And when um, a particularly famous one said, no, no, you don't understand, it'll impact on our publications. I said, but we fund you, the taxpayer. You know, this is not right. And afterwards, uh, Mark Walpert, Jeremy Farrar, Chris Whitty and I published a piece in The Lancet about how we needed journals to be upfront that in emergencies, allowing others to use the data did not impact on publication. They could still do their publication. But that was a cause of real frustration um, because, as Oliver says, you need one set of data across the whole of government. It needs to be correct, and you want it to be up to date. Mm. And when people won't share, you're in a mess. So what lessons mm. were learned and developed mm. at the time and, and how they've been learned and, and, you know, where we stand at the moment. So around the data sharing is certainly one of them. But Sally, what about Oliver's sort of account of the, from his point of view, he didn't really see SAGE playing such a central role in decision making. Is, is From you where you were, do you think that's probably because the deliberations... Was moderated, is... wasn't it? So in the big meetings that Oliver and I attended the COBRA meetings, there would be Mark Walpert, who would speak essentially based on the SAGE advice, it'd be me based on the SAGE advice, but with input from the NHS about and the Department of Health, and there'd be Chris Whitty based on SAGE, but knowing what DFID were doing. So we didn't stand up and say, SAGE says this, we were moderating it, mm -hmm. And in general, there was one occasion when there was a, a disagreement, a, a bit of a disagreement. In general, we were 
in agreement with where we'd got to in SAGE. So SAGE was in the room, though not named. From your point of view, as sort of being the some points, the sort of conduit or the the, in, the interlocutor, Sally, but what kind of value did that SAGE process that it, as it was then working add? I mean, because you could have had those conversations without SAGE existing, you know, under that specific name. But what, what... Well, you could, but the modelling, for instance, you don't want to rely on just one modeller. You want the different people who model in different ways to do theirs and then to have a debate, a moderated debate about what is the most likely model. And for people who aren't modelers like me, to hear some of that debate and see where they land up gives you a feeling of the friability of models, the value of models about where it could go, but it it doesn't need to, and what we need to do to interact. So a SAGE process does that and develops my or the CMO's understanding and others' understanding so that you can translate it. But I think the biggest thing for me was, in fact, um, Melissa, because there was Ebola spreading and it was a social scientist. Melissa was the leader for them, for us, which said it's being transmitted. You acted like detectives because you knew what was going on. It's being transmitted at funerals. Here are the reasons why. So that has to be interrupted. But this is how one does it. And and actually, many of your colleagues in country picked up that position. So before I hand over to you, Melissa, let me just say, there's the politics and the community issues, which our anthropologists helped with, but there's the politics at the big level, which, of course, Oliver led. But Oliver insisted that we put a very senior and pretty effective um, go-getting director from DFID, as a matter of fact, in the office next to the president of Sierra Leone to make sure that what we did was acceptable Mm. politically and it would go forward. So you've got the science, the logistics and the politics at both levels having to be handled and work together. Melissa, so we've heard from Oliver's perspective, from from Sally, who's sort of inside government, but acting as as an expert advisor and sort of collator of expert evidence. But you're you're outside government, you're sitting in the academic world, having kind of on the ground knowledge of West Africa and the kinds of conditions that that people there are going to be working in and, and living in what was your experience of being being sort of did did it feel like being you know sucked into a to a well-functioning machine or did it feel uh, how how did it feel yeah it actually felt like a privilege and an opportunity in fact to be listened to so I I had this role as an interlocutor with local universities and academics and Jali University in Sierra Leone people who were working on the ground with communities also with big networks of anthropologists and social scientists with their own local partners who were all having their own kind of online debate. It was like an endless moving workshop that went out, went on for about a year. And I found myself in a position of being able to, to feed what was happening in those discussions and those realities as they were filtering up from the ground into the SAGE. There were several areas where what the on-the-ground knowledge was showing were actually quite challenging to the, the mainstream government response. Okay, so One of them was around whether the approach is to go in and build big hospitals and Ebola treatment units, 
or whether actually we should take a different tack and go for what we call community care centres. And DFID actually did do that. And it was a result of the discussions amongst the social scientists and amongst um, with Chris Whitty and in the social science subgroup. And we talked about it in SAGE. And this was an alternative model where you would actually construct triage centres in existing buildings, in places, in rural areas, in peri-urban areas that were familiar to people, that they would find um, more welcoming, less alienating that people had seen with, with these frightening hospitals with people in, in personal protective equipments and so on. And we wanted actually to encourage people not to hide their cases in the bush, which is what was happening, but actually to come forward and seek treatment. And as a way of putting out the message that yes, Ebola has high fatality rates, but if you come for treatment, the chances of surviving are very much greater. And those were important messages to get across. And the community care centers were, were built um, a little bit too late to be as effective as they might be, but they did happen. They were evaluated and they, they were shown to be an effective response. That happened through the social science. The second big area, as Sally and others have mentioned, was burials because it became fairly clear early on that funerals um, were a key kind of super spreader moment, especially the funerals of important local people, often the officials of men's and women's initiation societies, where it's customary if somebody dies to, to bring people from across the region, and they will all interact and touch the body and so on. And there were examples where that led to very, very high rates of infection. But it wasn't too difficult. Once villagers began to understand the transmission risks, for them to come up with creative solutions, which would enable them to do the important things around burials and funerals, which enable somebody to become an important ancestor, for debts to be settled, for social life to be continued, to follow the, the social and cultural protocols, which are critically important around somebody's death, um, but actually to minimize the infection risks. And so once people, once that sort of co-learning happened, we saw all kinds of creative responses from running sacrifices to the ancestors, which avoided no touching, or doing a burial and delaying the, the big visits and social events. And then I think the third area that's actually quite important is around modeling. Because um, as Oliver and Sally have said, we, we had modelers in SAGE. They often had slightly different views amongst them and that important triangulation of modeling is crucial. But what was also vital was triangulating epidemiological models with the on the ground knowledge of how transmission was actually happening. And typically epi models assume transmission in quite a linear fashion and calculate it in relation to population sizes and densities. Whereas what the, the, the social science was showing was some very particular dynamics where cases would happen often in a village, then it would transmit through a trading post in a market town, then it would go back to the village. There was a kind of boomerang effect between rural and urban areas. And some of the key spreading points were these market towns on trade routes. And, and once that was understood, it was possible then to have more targeted social mobilization events to, and activities to minimize transmission. And it also actually, frankly, thwarted the models because, again, once communities learned about the key transmission points, they could act to reduce them. And in the end, I think the big story from Ebola is that it was community learning and the co-learning between frontline health workers in country and villagers that eventually bent the epidemic curves and led to bottom-up behaviour change.
Can I just add to that, all of which I, I recognise entirely, actually, from my own experience? I think one has to distinguish between that, which probably is what flattened the curve, and the ring vaccination, which is probably what brought the thing finally under control. I'm not sure that flattening the curve without the ring vaccination would have worked. I'm sure that the ring vaccination without flattening the curve would not have worked. So what one is definitely necessary, perhaps both were necessary to achieve a, a lasting solution. I mean, I, I thought what was most interesting was the extent to which all the therapeutic efforts, which is what I was entirely focused on in the early period, were, were very secondary to these sociological and public health efforts. If somebody said to me on day one, don't worry about curing people of this disease, worry about finding a means of making this disease not transmit so much, that would have been a very helpful thing to be told. And, and I wasn't told that. And I think the reason I wasn't told that is nobody really had thought through that yet. I think we learnt on the job a lot about what was really going to make the difference. And, and part of that is precisely because this was a, a thing far away. And it's very interesting that in the UK context, and Sally will maybe want to comment on this, but there, there was, of course, a considerable amount of effort put into making sure the Royal Free Hospital, for example, was geared up to deal with patients, which incidentally it did phenomenally successfully. I mean, there wasn't a single, I think, UK death from Ebola that turned out that uh, all sorts of sort of you know, therapeutic interventions and hydrations and things kept people alive in an amazing way. But although there was that, the main focus inside the UK was throughout from Sally and Chris and so on, was on public health measures inside the UK that would be necessary if someone arrived here with Ebola. So, so there's a lot, a lot we've just covered there from, from Melissa's account of the way that social science you know, was able to kind of understand and help mediate the kinds of relationships on the ground that, that tend to, turned out to be most effective. And Oliver's point about kind of therapy versus public health interventions, differences between what we were doing in the UK domestically versus how we were thinking about the international context. Sally, there's a lot there. You were at the centre of it all. <laughs> what, what do you make of what we've just heard? Well, I, I think I'd add one more thing. I mean, because, of course, I, I remember it too that it took us a while to understand that another tool, because what were we doing? We were in, trying to empower both the politicians nationally and locally, as we understood, and give them tools to work with. How important testing was. And it took us a while, and then it was difficult to get it set up and working. All sorts of logis logistic problems there. And I, I still remember... Chris Whitty explaining, and of course he was right, how important it was not only to test, but to keep people separate while you waited for the result, because they could have symptoms of Ebola, but have something else. But if you put them with the Ebola people while you waited to hear, they would have Ebola by the end. So simple testing made a big difference. I think we made a big change once we sent in the army because they put in place logistics for testing for treatment centers. But that was actually quite late on. And I think one of the big learnings that uh, I know Oliver and I got, which is so obvious, is why don't you intervene early? Because if you intervene early... Uh, and snuff it out, it's much cheaper. After all, there were 28,500 um, cases or more and over 11,000 deaths, and they lost 7% of their health um, 
people uh, in Sierra Leone. So it was devastating for the country. And one of the things we set up afterwards using official development assistance money was a rapid support team. So the minute, so instead of waiting until the newspapers tell us about it or someone else says, we are available now to provide a team if the country says, I think I've got a problem, or the WHO says, could you go and check whether this is a problem and mount a public health response up front? And that public health the support team, rapid support team, has been very successful and called on around the world. So I think our, our learning fed through to a model that's been helpful for everyone. I mean, that does turn us to the question now, of, given, you know, working with the assumption that, that the interventions the UK government made were helpful and that the kind of the this case was a sort of case of things working out relatively well, despite what you were saying, Sally, that, you know, the costs were you know, very high in Sierra Leone and in other countries affected. What what kind of lessons, positive lessons can be learned? And we've, we've talked about the importance of logistics, the importance of data sharing, the value of incorporating social science insights from, from the beginning and, and the value of being prepared, not waiting. Um, thinking about those four in turn, Sally, um, what were the sort of lessons that you would like people to remember from, from the Ebola episode? Well, on data sharing, I don't think we're quite there yet. It is because of the egos of uh, famous modelers and people, though we have tried by discussing with the WHO and everyone. Everyone can see what ought to happen, but I don't think it's happening smoothly yet. And that then takes you into surveillance modelling. I, I do think there's a big role, uh, as Oliver said, about vaccines. So we set up the UK vaccine network with about £120 million and brought in the private sector alongside the academics. And um, I got Chris Whitty to chair that. And in fact, the AstraZeneca uh, Oxford work is based on work that was funded mainly out of that for a MERS vaccine that they then transferred across. So what we learned then, we put into practice, it's helped us now with COVID. And I think we need to, and everyone recognises that, do more. I think the social sciences, we've integrated it into SAGE and we need anthropologists. What we haven't done is think enough yet about how we integrate it for our own UK response proactively early rather than responsively late so perhaps i could turn to melissa now you know on specifically on that what would you hope to see you know carried forward yeah yeah well i think um ebola was a real turning point for social science in epidemic preparedness and response a really big one actually there were some very important follow-ups. Sally's talked about the rapid support team in the UK. That includes social scientists within it. There was an important report published called Towards a People-Centred Epidemic Response that came out of Ebola, which set the stage for this much earlier involvement of social scientists. We found donors following up with us after that Ebola response anthropology platform, wanting to, as it were, repeat the process to be available for future outbreaks and with support from UNICEF and in the last two years 
a combination of the Wellcome Trust and the FCDO. We've been running a social science and humanitarian action platform, which has been providing social science briefings on context and, and social issues into epidemics of all kinds, including the subsequent Ebola outbreaks that happened in the DRC and also around COVID, multiple briefings. And the WHO has picked this up. So there was a social science expert group around COVID, which I don't think would have happened without the experience of Ebola, actually. And it's been very active and it's now led to the establishment of a new risk and resilience unit within the WHO, which is working on community engagement and resilience. So all of these things have happened. I do think, though, that there are um, two problems as I see them. One is still a tendency to kind of look for the magic bullet in social science to say somehow if we can kind of unlock some cultural clue it'll make everything all right. And in some ways, the fact that that was kind of the case for burials in Ebola was a positive at the time, but also a negative, because I think it set up this idea that somehow what social, what social sciences can do is provide a kind of quick fix, cultural quick fix to dealing with an epidemic. Whereas in fact, the contribution is a lot more nuanced. It's about engaging, triangulating, working with the modelers, trying to understand the, the, the social, the political, the economic context in which outbreaks happen, and which all kinds of interventions are going to have to work with if they're going to be effective. And that includes the, the more technical interventions, vaccines, um, therapeutics, diagnostics. And I think the other problem, and we've seen this in the UK with COVID, is a narrow interpretation of, of, of who the social scientist should be. So SAGE for COVID has had, from the beginning, SPI-B, it's behavioral science subgroup, but it's been very much behavioral science, a particular set of disciplines founded on methods and tools around nudge theory and so on. Later in COVID, we've seen an opening up. There are some anthropologists and political scientists, some geographers on board and contributing. And of course, many have been contributing around the edge, even if not in those formal processes. But I think there's a real need to appreciate the breadth of social science expertise in the same way that we appreciate a breadth of, of medical and epidemiological expertise. We don't just have one person on board. We don't just have one discipline. We see this as a multidisciplinary set of conversations. And I think that's what needs to be happening, those deliberations um, across multiple social sciences and medical sciences within SAGE. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it may be that, you know, it's clear that there have been some, you know, relationships and institutional connections that have continued and borne fruit in terms of bringing different kinds of social science, including anthropology, in, into the picture, into dialogue with the other kinds of expertise and interventions. Um, and so that's very positive. But it it also feels like perhaps that isn't as embedded as it could be across um, different different domains. And maybe that maybe the story of the, the success in, in the case of Ebola in 2014 yeah. could, could be told more. Can um, I just Come in on one thing. I think there's a really important lesson that Oliver mentioned at the beginning about the role of public health services. Why did Nigeria cope when, when uh, cases popped up there? Because it had strong public health. And yet, across the world over the last decade or so, we've seen withdrawal of funding for public health services and weakening of public health services. And I, I think... Our awakening should have been with Ebola, both nationally and globally. 
Can I just say that I completely agree with Sally there. I think preparedness for future epidemics has to be about strong and I would say trusted health systems. I mean, it's fascinating listening both to Sally and Melissa because I I think this is a sort of tale of two different trends. There are some things, some, some areas in which the lessons are very, really well learned. I mean, Sally's mentioned to the, the, the vaccine effort and the, the rapid response force allied, as Melissa has pointed out, to a, a more sophisticated understanding of what kind of knowledge you need to do these things. I, I think that the UK's capacity to respond or to help respond, help other countries respond, to, to certain kinds of health emergencies abroad has, as a consequence, improved. And I think the work that Sally did with the WHO has helped in getting them better equipped to mobilise for such things. And all of this is very positive. So you might ask the question, uh, I would ask the question, why were we completely caught on the hop on COVID? Instead, um, we were the only people, but nevertheless, uh, uh, we were. Another thing that's jolly useful if you're the UK is to know that a disease is heading your way. One of the lessons I personally learned from Ebola was that we ought to have a a sort of surveillance system for the UK that enabled us to spot when viruses were going on somewhere that might hit our way. It's all very well having lots of of experts and learning lots of lessons, but if they don't translate into an owner in government that's got the money and the will and the power to keep them in being and to, to learn those lessons effectively so they're actually available when you need them the next time, they won't be available the next time and that's the problem we face. Our time's up. I mean, I personally would love to stay here for, for longer because I, I think that the, these are really, really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us for such a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for me. Fascinating discussion. Epidemics and other disasters will occur. We need to be prepared. That requires multiple forms of knowledge and proper connections between that knowledge and real action, as we've been discussing. So thank you so much. I'm delighted to have participated and thank you very much. Fascinating discussion. It's I always learn from um, Oliver and Melissa, so thank you very much. This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. To hear more conversations like this, make sure to follow and subscribe on the podcast provider of your choice. You can follow us on Twitter at CSIPOL. Thank you to our producer, Jessica Foster, and researcher Nick Kostick. And thank you for listening.